listening to ComedySlamRadio.com. From our studios to the world, we bring you the finest in quality entertainment. So pop some popcorn, grab a smooch buddy, and settle in for another fine show. From ComedySlamRadio.com. You are live tonight with Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank on Comedy Slam Radio. We have a great show for you guys tonight. We have Tom Driesen calling in. And right now in the studio, Tom doesn't even know it yet, but we have one of his old friends. And his old friend is Peter Hefty. Are you going directly to him? You just wait and introduce him to me in a minute. We also have Larry G., and Gwiggy in. Hello. Pete. Everybody say hello. And hello. Peter Hefty and Justin the Dummy. Hey, how's it going? Not, not too bad. Good to see you. Do you get upset when I call you a dummy? Not at all. I like it. You like it? I'm used to it. You're used to it. <laughs> My ignorance of ventriloquism. No, no, no. There's, oh, I think only ventriloquists get mad sometimes, but I'm not one of those guys. All right. There's some that do, but. All right. So it's an exciting show. We have Tom calling in. We're going to talk to him a lot about... Uh, a lot of things from the past with comedy strikes and everything about his time when he worked with Tim as a duo in comedy. Yep. And he, you know, he's going to be on for the whole hour. So as soon as we get ready to patch him in, you just, you know, we're going to go ahead and start the show. How are we doing, Nolan? We ready to go ahead? Working on it. I'll be right there. We're going to get him in just a minute. No problem. Yeah. All right. So. You're in town, right? Are you right. going to be doing some local work here? Yes, at Jack's Joint. You're going to be Jack's Joint? Nice. What, what night? Uh, Friday, week? Saturday, yeah, and Sunday show. Friday and Saturday. Now, how, how long have you been out and about? Over 30 years now. 30, 30 years. years. Yeah, yeah. That's now why I'm me sure and Tom go way back. <laughs> oh, yeah. And When I was starting out. Almost as long as some open micers we have. There you go. <laughs> 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 that could be me in 30 years. you got, you got to stay around, man. You yeah. know, you close down, i got nowhere to perform my material, Blair. He really doesn't. Yeah, no one else will let him we in. we got a couple hookers at the hotel next door that keep telling me the same thing, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> Larry, how long have you been doing? I mean, you've been a promoter, and, a, and you do comedy yourself. How long have you been doing it now? Uh, I think 19 years. 19 wow. years. Mm-hmm. What made you decide to get into that? Because it's, it's a lot of work to promote a show. And Bob Shoemaker, my partner, walked in my movie theater one day and said, you ever think about doing comedy here? And we had been thinking about it. And uh, we made an, a deal that day. We shook hands. We drew up a contract that was about two paragraphs long. We both signed it. And the rest been, is history. <laughs> nice. <laughs> we've been together for 15 years. Wow. So now you guys have had many different rooms all over. Coconuts is pretty well oh, yeah. a staple around the Tampa Bay area for yeah. a long time. Well, they, they and the Caribbean uh, rooms were my favorites they used to have. They had rooms yeah. all over the islands, too. Nice. Yeah, they're as far as Chicago and yeah. Caribbean and... That was back in the day when he was a younger man and he had more energy. Yeah. Aruba. I did Aruba for you guys a bunch of times, remember? Aruba. Yeah. It's turning into the Co- Beach Boys Kokomo song here all yeah. of a sudden. Aruba, <laughs> yeah, Jamaica. <laughs> you, I'm going to perform here at the Coconuts. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so in all the different places that you performed, how many other uh, comedic acts have you worked with that also use the, uh, the ventriloquism? Through the years, not that many, which is amazingly surprising. But then I found out after seeing like Jeff Dunham's biography recently that he was doing mostly the Southwest. Well, in fact, I was always leaving Chicago area and coming down to do the Southeast mostly, you know. So it's kind of makes sense that we didn't cross paths that much during the 10-year, 20-year mm-hmm. thing because right. he was, again, doing the Southwest mostly. And occasionally he would cross over and do something like in Florida. I'd like to kick in that if you're going to be a comic, you should really be working the Southwest because Jeff Dunham's got tens of millions of dollars and Peter has tens of dollars. So. Tens of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> so I think maybe the Southwest is worth Yeah. <laughs> maybe go, go, go west, young man, with the gold or something. I don't know. Maybe that's true. But no, he's, he's done great. And, uh, and I think I've met well quite a few other ventriloquists through the years, like Otto and George's on the Howard Stern show a lot. Otto and George are very funny, mm-hmm. very funny. They're controversial type comedian of ventriloquists, which is hard to believe those two <laughs> words in the same paragraph, a controversial ventriloquist, but he is. Nice. He, uh, Howard loves him. He's All a right, shocking. Pete, I think we're ready. We're about mm-hmm. to go live to Tom, so let's go ahead and bring Tom in. Tom, how are you? 
I'm fine. Uh, we're, we're having trouble with the connection here for a moment, but I'm fine now. How are you guys doing? We're doing great. I have myself here. I have a friend of mine, Gwiggy, who's a local comedian here. Hello, Tom. I, and his name is Gwiggy? I am Gwiggy, yes. That's his name. <laughs> I, love, I love the name. Thank you. Gwiggy. <laughs> How do you spell that, Gwiggy? G-W-I-G-G-Y. Yeah. Good. It basically started when Will Smith went out and got Jiggy with it. Uh, I, I went out and got Gwiggy with it, and uh, history was made at some point somehow. There you go. Yeah. I, I, I also, Tom, I want to introduce you to, we got Larry G here. Larry G okay. has been in the Tampa Bay comedy scene for about 18 years, local, uh, running a lot of local coconuts comedy clubs, which has been all around. Hi, Tom. Heard mm-hmm. about, a lot about you from Peter. Hi, Larry. What would you say? I said I heard a lot about you from Peter. And oh, Pe- thank and, you. And, and Peter's a little bit of a surprise guest that I didn't that we kind of found out was going to be here. And when he heard you were on the show, he, you know, I said you should stay and say hello. But it's Peter Hefty and his buddy Justin is here in the studio. Hi, Tom. Peter How Hefty. Peter Hefty, one of the great actors of all time, a man who had the great sense to cast me in a film as a doctor. And, and, the, and I thought for sure I'd get a nomination from that film, but I, it, it just didn't happen. But, Pete, it's good to talk to you. Good to see you, too, Tom. Good, good to hear from you, my good friend. How are you? I'm fine, Pete. Tell them the name of the movie. I got it written here, but I want you to see, tell them. Or did you talk about it already? No, we didn't talk about the movie because I, I, I don't remember. Now, you might be thinking of another Peter Hefty. That's what I'm afraid of. That's why I'm oh, scared okay. of it right now. But that's okay because I'm, I'm Pickle Barrel Days. I'm pickle barrel days. With oh wow, you're way. That, oh, this is a different Peter Hefty. I, there's yeah. another Peter. There is Hefty. another Peter he, Hefty. Yeah, there is. He cast <laughs> me in a movie as a doctor called Twin Dicks, and it was about two guys that were they were uh, two cops, you know, oh, and they were called Twin Dicks. It was, it was obviously a double entendre, but nice. it's funny. <laughs> well, with a name like yeah. Peter Hefty, he could do that. I could see him yeah. doing that. Good. Peter Hefty's from back in the in the pickle barrel days, and he has the ventriloquist uh-huh. dummy Justin. Yeah, you you told me once, Tom. I had a, a pretty good act, but the worst ending in show business, which I always loved, and I never forgot. He still does, Tom. He still. Oh, does. I, I apologize. I hope it didn't, hope it didn't uh, damage your mentality for the rest of your. No, year. no, Tom. I loved just hearing your voice. It's awesome. I saw you on Letterman not too long ago, and I, I was I loving that too. I was calling all my friends. Guess who's on Letterman? So, oh, thank you. Yeah, he's been very good to me. I, I've I've done probably fifty of this at least 50 appearances on there or more and he's let me host the show when he had the shingles he let me host so whenever i see him i say you don't look so good you need to take some time off. <laughs> so you guys are familiar with the pickle barrel let me explain to you in chicago many years ago i was with a comedy team as you know tim reed and i were america's first black and white comedy team and then history shows were the last but w- w- at that time we were new the only place we could work there were no comedy clubs in america at that time there was one in new york the improvisation and um and, and bud friedman started that and it was a singer and a comic and a singer and a comic so we had gone to new york to try to audition for some shows and i went into the improvisation and i thought oh my god these guys get a chance to work out every night you know in chicago we had to Go get up in front of jazz groups, or well, when jazz groups took a break, or anywhere we could that we could get up on a stage, you know, charities or school basements, whatever. Uh, so when I saw what they did in New York, I came back to Chicago and I met with a guy named Henry Norton, and he had a club called Lay Pub, and I asked him if I could start a comedy night there, uh, and and uh, he allowed me to do that on Monday nights, and it, I went around did some radio shows and newspapers. Uh, at, you know, um, interviews to try to get people to come there. And the first night there were lines around the block. I, it, uh, Chicago was so starved for that kind of uh, entertainment. I didn't think I had enough acts even to put on that night. But it was a success for a long time. And then finally he turned uh, the, uh, the the pub into a gay bar, which even made a lot more money than our comedy club. <laughs> and uh, th- and we opened, then we went to the Pickle Barrel. That was the second place we went, you know, in Chicago where young comedians could get a chance to, you know, open mic nights and to at least work on their craft, you know. I remember those days. I used to hitchhike from Wisconsin down to Chicago to get down to Well Street to Pickle Barrel. And I was thrilled if you liked me enough to give me a soda. You gave me a Coca-Cola because remember back then it was a it was a great room. Great room, great energy, great acts, and you were the best host in the world back then. You were great. I think I, nothing pleases me more than to introduce to the audience and to America, new comedians. I'm, I'm, you know, I was a 
I loved stand-up comedians before I ever was one, before I ever even thought I'd be one, you know. When I worked construction, when I was in the service, you know, and, and to, um, to, you know, to, to have the opportunity to, you know, to expose a new comedian. We used to have, it in those days, if you remember, Pete, we had a thing called Virgin Spot, mm-hmm. where I would tell yeah. the audience, you know, do you like Bill Cosby? Do you like Bob Hope? Who do you like? Whoever you like. Somewhere, they had to go on stage for their very first time. Well, this is the spot we dedicate to that person, that man or that woman. And I remember one night, Marsha Warfield walked in, and she had never been on stage before, and I put her on for her very first time, and she just killed the audience her very first time. She was so good, I thought she lied to me that she had been on stage before, <laughs> but it find out she had not been. But that was my, one of my favorite spots was to introduce that person to their first audience, you know. Oh, you were great at that. that I've always thought you should have been, you would have been the greatest talk show host of all time. I mean, aside from Carson, I thought you were the guy. You and, you, you know, remember back when David Brenner did it a lot? David Brenner? Yeah. And he would fill in, and I always thought, you know, well, where's Dre- Dreesen should be doing this? This is Dreesen's spot, because I thought, how cool would that be? You'd be bringing back all the Midwest guys, or at least they'd be trying to get on your show. I I had a problem, you know, the years I was touring with Frank Sinatra, I turned down more sitcoms than most comedians get offered in a lifetime. I turned down more opportunities because I was flying in Frank's jet 45, 50 cities a year uh, all over the world and, you know, and staying at Frank's house. And and when I wasn't doing that, I was playing golf on the Celebrity Players Tour, which was basketball, baseball, football, hockey, tennis, and show business people that were 10 handicap or below. So it was Johnny Bench, Mike Schmidt, Mario Lemieux, John Elway, Dan Marino, Michael Jordan. So I'm, I'm playing golf against these guys in an arena with them, and, and then I'm flying with Frank. I didn't want to give the, you know, I'll tell you why, because uh, Christopher Morley, the author one time, I read a book, he said, success is living the life you want. And I was truly living the life I want. Sometimes I think back and think, geez, I should have been, you know, I had my own talk show for one week in Chicago. We were trying to do a late night show out of Chicago. Uh, a guy named Joe Ahern from ABC uh, gave me one week. And, and, and I told him, if I do this, we did one week, and on the Thursday night, all I brought on was comedians. I told him, if I do this, I want one night a week just to expose America to the newest comedians, you know, the hot new comedians out there. Um, because it wasn't being that, you know, in, in our day, Pete, and I'm talking too much here, guys, so you can shut me up anytime <laughs> you want, but, but when I started out in show business, wherever you went in America, People say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson, in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one, but you weren't. So we all focused ourselves to get on that show. What does it take to get on that show? What type of material and, and what are they looking for? Because it was a launching pad. Not Merv Griffin, not Mike Douglas, not Dinah Shore. And all those shows were good shows. But it was Johnny's show that launched... I can name you 60 comedians that that show launched, including myself, but you can't name me one that Jay Leno's launched, and you can only name me one that David Letterman's launched, and that's Jay Leno. Right. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. right. That's, that's so true. Story. That's so true. Yeah. So, so, Tom, you, you were a construction worker, and what brought you to comedy? So, I mean, it's been very good to you, but what, what was the switch that turned it on where you decided you were going to get on stage the first time yourself? Well, first of all, when you wake up one morning, you say, you know what, I'm an insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, love-starved wreck. You think, there's only one profession left for you. I tell you what, I, I didn't know that other people had that. Then I'll theory. answer your question. My, I maintain that 85% of all stand-up comedians are insecure, neurotic, sometimes psychotic, love-starved wrecks. And the other 15% are gifted, confident people who say, I know how to write a joke and I know how to tell one. I like to think that I'm in the latter of the 15%, but never trust anyone who tells you they're sane. But, uh, <laughs> but my, what brought me to it, I, I never dreamed I'd ever be in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I never, never thought it was even, it, was, it wasn't even a remote thought in my mind. I was in the JCs, a civic group, when I first came out of the service. Uh, I had grown up poor, it lived in a shack, eight kids, five of us slept in one bed. I grew up on the streets. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. You know, <laughs> I shined shoes in taverns. I set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summer as a little boy, all to feed my brothers and sisters. When I came out, I went in the service when I was 17. When I came out after four years, the first thing I did uh, was I started getting active in community affairs because of, of my childhood, trying to help young kids that came from that kind of background. I got involved in the JCs, a civic group, 
and um, and they had a lot of leadership programs teaching how to get up in front of an audience and what have you. And I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. They weren't teaching drug education in those days in colleges or high schools, let alone at an elementary school level. So helping me with this project was a young black man who graduated from Norfolk State College, and E.I. DuPont recruited him from Norfolk, Virginia, into Chicago. And he joined the JCs, and he, the first day he joined, I was proposing this project, and he said, I'd like to work with you on that. And I had a guy already on the project. As fate would have it, the next day my friend called me and said, Tom, I got a new job and I can't do that. And I said, gee, what was that young black kid's name? Oh, yeah, Tim Reed. So Tim and I went in the classrooms. We studied and everything. We went in the classrooms, and the program became a hit. Um, in 50 states and 22 foreign countries, JCs used our program as a model program on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day a little eighth-grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us, you know. And so we, you know, we, we said, trying to do this. We said, would you do that? I don't know. Would you do that? We didn't know anything about it. We started writing what we thought was funny, you know. And we finally, there was no comedy clubs. We begged the owner to let us get up on stage one night of a, of a little club. We got up and we bombed, you know. <laughs> we, we were going so fast. All we wanted to do was remember our lines. We didn't pause at all for any laughter, you know. So we went on stage like, hi, we're the comedy team of Tim Tommy, Tim, I'm Tom. And we just kept battling. Nice. And finally, finally, some guy hollered out in the back, slow down, I can't understand you. I said, oh, sir, please don't heckle us. This is our first time. <laughs> that, that was my great comeback, you know. So we came off stage and we cornered the owner and we're still talking 100 miles an hour. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? What'd you think? The guy said, slow down. I don't know if you're funny or not. You never gave me a chance to laugh, you know. So the next night we came in and we slowed down and we got a couple laughs and it was like, and that, and that the rest, as they say, is history, you know. Oh, man. So did you and Tim ever work your way through the cat skills? No, you know, in those days they wouldn't hire us because we weren't big enough name, you know, and, and the irony is I could we could never work there. I always wanted to work there. But we, we weren't a big enough name. And then when I became, when I, you know, by the time I was doing the Tonight Shows and everything, I was making more money than what they could pay me. So I was in the middle all the time. Oh. What we did, we in those days, there were no comedy clubs. We toured black-owned, black-operated nightclubs, what they affectionately called the Chitlin Circuit. You know, um, the, the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Sugar Shack in Boston, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City. Before they had gambling in Atlantic City, they had the Club Harlem, we would work these black-owned, black-operated clubs. We then finally made it to the Playboy circuit, which was fantastic because there were 17 Playboy clubs in America, and it was like a vaudeville, and you did six shows a night in some of those clubs. Nice. They had the penthouse and the playroom, so you'd do a show, and then you'd go upstairs and do another show. You'd come back downstairs, and you, you did that all night long. So it was really great training for us. Oh, that, that sounds awesome. awesome. I remember you when you were on uh, all them great TV shows back then, not just Johnny Carson, but Don Kirshner's Rock Concert, uh, you know, the Mid Midnight Special. Uh, remember Midnight Special? You were on that with Tim sure. and Tom, and you were on uh, so many of those other shows that were just so hot back then. I, I just I loved watching you guys. What a great time to be in a stand-up comic. In the 70s, you know, we all migrated out here to the West Coast because Johnny Carson moved from New York to the West Coast. So I came out here, and the only game in town was a comedy store on Sunset Strip. And it and comedy became the rock and roll of the 70s, you know. Oh, yeah. uh, so, I mean, all these new kids came out here. I was on stage every night with new kids. Uh, Gallagher, Robin Williams, uh, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Gallagher, Michael Keaton. You know, the girl wow. waiting tables was Deborah Winger, you know. And, and uh, we, we were, you know, and, and also every night at the comedy store, every night, it, there would be talent scouts in there from... You know, you think about the shows that we're using comedians, you know, Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. Yeah. I did all those shows. I mean, I was the only white comedian ever to be on Soul Train. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I, I have an album in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. <laughs> we, we meant to ask so, you about that one. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I mean, because I had, I had worked in black audiences so much, that I, and I had a lot of routines about growing up in a black neighborhood, I played basketball on an all-black basketball team, and I played football on an all-black football team. So I did a lot of routines about being the only white boy in a black situation. So everywhere I went, when I did The Tonight Show and I did material like that, white people kept saying to me, do black people laugh at your material? And I got so tired of explaining that I just went and did an album in front of an all-black audience 
and I kept, you know, the album with me. Whenever somebody say, "Do black people have your material?" I'd whip it out and say, "Give me fourteen ninety-five. Find out for yourself." You know. That's great. That's great. Now, now, Tom, can I ask you? Um, in, I guess you, you and Tim broke up in seventy-five. Uh, mm-hmm. What what was it like when you first started off and had to go off by yourself at that point? I mean that that had to be a hard transition for a little while. Well, what the hard transition was, and, and, I, and, and I, I we wrote this in a book, you know, and the book is now going to become a movie, as as you know. But oh, wow. it was like, uh, I mean, it was like a, a divorce. I went on stage my very first time with Tim Reed. I had never been on stage alone. And when that team broke up, I mean, I was devastated. I was absolutely, I thought we were going to become the greatest comedy team in America. I mean, that was my dream, my hope, that we, that I, all my hopes and dreams and prayers were based on Tim and Tom. And when the team split up, I had never been on stage alone. So I, I mean, I, I ended up out on the West Coast. Um, I left my wife and kids in Chicago and Tim and I did our last gig in Houston, Texas, and I came out here because he is already out here. Mm-hmm. He was living with a uh, with a, a singing star, and and he's living up in Beverly Hills, and and I I ended up uh, sleeping in an abandoned car, an old Nash Rambler. Uh, at first, I house sat for a friend of mine, a girl that had a um, she she was a girl singer. I had gotten some gigs at one time when I was with the comedy team. Mm-hmm. She let me house sit her house. I had never heard that expression before. She said, you're coming out to the West Coast. I have to go on the road. Why don't you house it? Where I'm from on the south side of Chicago, when you're sitting on someone's house, you're burglarizing. It, you know? <laughs> I had never heard that expression before. So I, sat, I, I stayed in her house three weeks, and then she came back, and she had a boyfriend. She said, you can't stay here. And, and I was hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard, begging to work for free you know, at the comedy store. And, uh, and I finally ended up sleeping in this Nash Rambler. It was in the, in the alley where she... Uh, where I used to dump her garbage, it, it was up on blocks, and the front seat came down, and I ended up staying that for like 30 days, hitchhiking, wow. you know, again, up and down Sunset, and, and um, you know, eating once a day at Kentucky Chicken. They had the corn and cluck for under a buck. It was two pieces <laughs> of chicken, a piece of corn, and some coleslaw for 99 cents, you know. So uh, th- every time I go by a Kentucky Colonel now, I genuflect, you know. <laughs> Well, I know by 78 you were back on your feet again a little bit because I know I was working in Fort Lauderdale at a, a little bar, and every Sunday night I had an open mic night, and I was using the stage name Peter Michael, and I had dropped the hefty, and I used my middle name, and I was calling myself Peter Michael and Justin, and you were opening for Tony Orlando and Dawn at the Sunrise Musical Theater, and you stopped in and did a, a guess. It was so awesome. I remember that. It was so awesome. Oh, yeah, you know, um, Pete, I, I, was, I did my first Tonight Show in uh, – December of 75. I, I got on my first tonight show. I think so. And, 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 um, and my whole life changed from that. I mean, I, I can't tell you what it was like, but my whole life changed. I mean, uh, one night I was on unemployment one day, and the following day, I mean, first of all, I got bumped, you know, four times before they put me on. Hmm. Um, the, the, you know, but that first tonight show, when I, when, when, you know, I went out, and uh, and uh, Johnny, you know, called me back for take a second bow. I got like eleven applause, and, and and then I went through the curtain, and and the coordinator of Craig Tennis came running around the corner. He said, "You got to go back. You got to go back." And I said, "He said, go back and take another bow." And I went back through the curtain, and Johnny gave you that little circle, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, m- the next day, Lee Curlin, a guy from CBS, was watching that show in New York, and CBS signed me to a development deal. William Morris signed me. Uh, Sammy Davis Jr. took me on tour. Uh, I mean, my whole life changed from that one appearance. On the- I've never stopped working since that first shot. You know? Wow, wow. That awesome. sounds like that needs to be everybody's goal. Well, yeah, it would be, you know, the tragedy today is, in those days, television wasn't that big. There was ABC, NBC, CBS. You know, that's why we all work clean in those days, because, you know, number what's the number one rule in sales? You know, we're, we're nothing but a commodity. As stand-up comedians, we're a commodity. What's the number one rule in sales? And that's create the need. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, how do you create the need? You know, we're trying to sell our wares from Boston to L.A., right? So our number one rule in sales is create the need. How do you create the need? You advertise. Well, how do you advertise? You get on television. Well, how do you get on television? You had to work clean. There wasn't cable in those days. I mean, I don't, I don't chide anybody for working blue, but, and I may be, would have been a blue comic maybe myself today if I'd had that opportunity. There wasn't that opportunity in those days. There was no cable. 
so you you either did the Tonight Show or you you know you worked in working blue. There wasn't an audience for it in those days. Today, the, the other day, I was on stage at the Laugh Factory trying out some new material, and I told the audience, I said, two young comedians in the back were talking about me, and they didn't know I was listening to them. And one of them said, you know, he's old school. And the other one said, what do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. The other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? (laughs) (laughs) And I stuck my head around the corner and I said, adjectives. (laughs) Awesome. But but again, you know, in those days, television wasn't big. You know, 15 million people watched Johnny Carson. Mm. And when you went on that show... I mean, it was an amazing thing if you scored what it did for you. You know, it, it just, your whole life changes, you know. Wow, wow. You were just always saying. Another thing, too, about you, Tom, which I'm not just saying this because I had the chance to. I was doing another uh, show here on Comedy Slam Radio tonight, and I was on my way out the door when these gentlemen were nice enough to tell me who their guest was going to be on the radio and uh, had a call in with Tom Dreesen. And I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it, Tom Dreesen. Because you were always, to me, in, in showbiz history, I can, I can name a million guys, but you were always the nicest guy in showbiz as far as giving a few minutes of your time to uh, some of the comics, asking, answering questions, talking to them. I mean, I remember being at the comedy store in California and next door at the coffee shop, you'd all sit down with the guys and give us a few minutes of your time and tell us straight up what's going on. And and how to be uh, how to how to put it together pull it together it was awesome well you repeat the, the the here's what happened i was in the business like 4 months i wanted to be a comedian more than anything in the world and i had read a book um, I've, I've read hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. I give motivation speeches now at universities and for corporate America, as well as I give a seminar to comedians in New York and Philadelphia and Chicago and L.A. called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. But I had read this book, and it said, if you, whatever it is you want to be, study the masters. You know, if you want to be a brain surgeon, you not only study other brain surgeons, you watch the brain surgeons operate. So I had read that book, and, and so I would sneak... And I, I tell young comedians this, too. You know, if you want to be on a stage that another comedian, you know, if you see a certain stage you want to be on, watch those who are on that stage. You know, go watch them work. Not to, to take their material or anything, but watch how they work at stage and, you know, study the master. So I snuck into a place called Mr. Kelly's after I'd been a comedian like four months. It was bitter cold out that night. It was like 20 below zero in Chicago. And Mort Saul was performing. And I watched this old master work the stage and everything. And when the show was over, I snuck back into the dressing room and I knocked on the door. And he opened the door and said, yeah. And he was all alone. And I said, Mr. Saul, my name is Tom Dreesen, and I'm a new comedian. And I just want to know if I could ask you a few questions. He said, sure, come on in, Tom. Sit down. And he talked to me for two hours till the next show. And he talked and gave me advice and gave me counsel. And, and uh, it, it, at some time during that conversation, he made comment about, well, you know how us comedians are. And when he put me in the same genre as him, I can't tell you how overwhelmed I was. When I left there that day, I was walking back to catch a train back to the south side of Chicago where I'm from. And I swore, I said, if ever I make it in show business, if ever a young comedian wants to talk to me, I'm going to do just what this guy just did to me. I'm going to give him my time. Because wow. uh, how good I felt that night that he talked to me, you know. Wow, then I thank Mort Saul awesome. for being nice yeah. to you. Because so you why. turned out really good. You're a good student. Yeah. I mean, you're a good yeah. student of, of that. I remember he said to me, do you write your own material, Tom? And I said, yeah. He said, remember, they're wrong. I said, who? He said, they. I said, who, they? He said, who are you writing about? They're wrong. Somebody's <laughs> got to be wrong in this joke. <laughs> you know, when you're writing a joke, comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you are going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Mm. You know, who's the victim? You know, and when Rodney said, I get no respect, obviously he was the victim, you know. When Joan Rivers said that Elizabeth Taylor was gaining so much weight when she left McDonald's the other day, she got stuck in the golden arches. There's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's not a strong joke, but it's an obvious, uh, you know, victim in the joke. You know. Didn't, uh, oh, I can't remember. She was just on Joan Rivers' show. Um, who's the golden girl that's still with us? I can't believe Betty White. Betty White. Betty White was just on Joan Rivers, and Joan Rivers yeah. had said to her, how's it feel to be 90? And Betty uh, Betty White goes, I don't know. You turned ninety a hundred years ago, bitch. You tell me. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought that was great. That was awesome. Hey, 
Can can we swear on, on the, can we swear can I can I swear because I want to tell you something she said. Or By all means, yeah. yes, yes. You are you can do whatever you like. It's internet. Oh, okay, radio. The reason I say it because Betty White. I love Betty White. I interviewed her when I had my own that little talk show in Chicago, and Betty and I have known each other for years. We, I've done you know variety shows with her, and I think she's just a crack up. But I uh, a friend of mine told me the other day he had a radio show, in in a little small market that she used to appear on for him. And he called her, this is when she was like 89, and he said, Betty, um, would you do my radio show? She said, Dale, I'd love to, but I'm so fucking hot right now. <laughs> that is great. <laughs> wow. So, I know Gwiggy has been wanting to ask a question, because <laughs> Gwiggy has a show here where he occasionally does some interviews with some people, and he did an interview with Elaine Boozler, and he had, he covered a topic with her that I believe he wants to cover yeah. with you. Yeah, I was curious. Uh, I've done a lot of reading in comedy, too. Um, I read a book called I'm Dying Up Here, uh, Heartbreak and High Times in Stand-Up Comedy, uh, by William, and I can't even pronounce this last name. Needlecedar. Needlecedar, okay. Yeah. And and it was interesting. It was, it was awesome talking to Elaine about this, because the first thing she said, she's like, oh, man, he got so many different things wrong about it, but it was a good overview of the book. So uh, I guess first off, uh, I don't know if you've read the book at all. Or seen any I, I have, and I have to be honest with you, I think he was dead on. Really? It's pretty hard to write about something that lasted that many years ago. But see, everybody in those days, and Elaine was a major part of that, and yeah. she's a dear friend and, and one of the funniest women this nation has ever known. Yes. And, and, and has, been, has been maligned sometimes, and wrongly so. She's a brilliant comedian mm. and, and, and a good woman, a good person. But and she was a major part of that effort that we went through in, in those days of the comedy store strike. But I thought, after all these years, thirty some years, that he got he was really accurate in on a lot of the things that went down. And for my part of it, what I read, I wouldn't deny one thing in there that he wrote oh, wow. about me. You know. Cool. How do you so feel was, about the it, role for those of your listeners who do not know what Gwiggy's talking about? In 1978. Now, by that time, I had I had already been on my way. I was making three hundred thousand dollars a year working Vegas, Tahoe, Reno, Atlantic City. I'm making a lot of money. I'm on my way. Every time we'd come back off the road, as I do to this day, I would new material to write on airplanes, as you guys know, in, in yeah. hotel rooms and wherever. That I would I would go over to the comedy show and I'd try out the new material. And besides, I was doing a lot of talk shows in those days. You keep coming up with the new five minutes for Carson. So one of the times I came back off the road, we always worked in the original room. There was another room next door that she bought that seated like 450, 500 people, where she had Rodney, and he got the door. Jackie Mason, he got the door. Mm -hmm. uh, Shecky Green, he got the door. Whoever appeared in there, we were all working for free. Well, when I came off the road one time, I, I went to go over to the comedy show to get up on stage, and they said, oh, Tom, you're in the main room. I said, the main room. He said, yeah, I went over there, and there was Jay Leno, me. Uh, David Letterman, Elaine Boozler, Robin Williams. I mean, this is what the lineup was that night. That's now, we were all newcomers, so yeah. to speak, but we packed that room, and people were waiting outside to get in. And afterward, we all went to have something to eat, as we did at Cantor's, a little restaurant all the comics hung out in. And Jay Leno was, you know, pissing and moaning. This is ridiculous. She pays them guys. We should get something. And it started a discussion. The next day, we had meetings, and all the comics wanted to get paid. And they wanted to organize. And I... I'm on my, I don't need this at this time in my career. I'm on my way. I, things are going real good for me. But I listened to them, and I went to the meetings while I was off the road, and they were the most disorganized group of crazy people I'd ever met in my life. You know, and, and, and I love every one of them. And they were intelligent people, most of them college grads, but they didn't know how to or, organize a meeting. And I had been in the JCs. I knew Robert's Rules of Order, and I knew how to conduct a meeting. Finally, after three chaotic meetings where Gallagher's saying, we've got to burn the place down and hang her and, you know, <laughs> stuff like that. That's their solutions, you know. And everybody is talking at the same time. I finally took, I chaired the evening. I, I got up and I said, hold it. You can't get anything resolved unless you, you, you know, someone has to chair this meeting. So I began to quiet them down. I'd say, okay, hold on. Hold on, Jay. And Gallagher, be quiet. Jay's got the floor. Make your point, Jay. Get a point of order. And I started organizing them. And then I put them in committees and subcommittees. And before you know it, they were a, a force to be reckoned with. Mm. You know, they were very, very smart people. And then I went to Mitchie and I said, Mitchie, the comics want to get paid. And that's when the war began. Mm. That's when she insisted that they should not be paid. We, we, I said, Mitchie, you pay the waiters, you pay the waitresses, you pay the bartender, you pay the guy that cleans the toilets. You know, 
you, 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 know, you have to pay the company. She wouldn't pay. She said, they don't deserve to be paid. I'm, and and we, we went through this argument. I went back and forth with her for almost two months while the comics were getting more and more organized and more and more organized and more and more organized. And finally, um, she, she had a little a group of people that she organized that were her um, loyalists. And it was about 18 of them. And finally, the, the comics wanted to go on strike. And I, and I talked to Mitchie. One night I went, I woke up in the middle of the night and I thought I had the solution. I, I rushed over there. I met her in the morning. I said, Mitchie, I got it. I got it. You're charging $4.50 at the door to let people in. I said, why don't you charge five fifty? Let the comedians have that $1. If there's 200 people, they share 200 bucks at night. If there's 300, they share 300. All the comedians. And, and she said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. And that's when I knew we have a problem because I thought it was a money issue. And I realized it was a control issue. And, and it wasn't a money issue. And that rocked my world. I left that place. I could hardly speak. I, I thought I had the solution. So the comics dug in and they went on strike for eight weeks. And in that eight-week period, they burned down the improvisation. We now know it was one of her loyalists that did that. She thought we were going to go over to the improvisation and work over there. And, and uh, one, of, one of her loyalists snuck over and threw a Molotov cocktail on the roof. Now, I'm not blaming her for that. It was some nutcase comic who did it. You know, uh, one of the waitresses tipped us off. And, and, and anyhow, long story short, we, um, when we walked the picket line, the improv didn't burn down totally. The front stayed open. So Bud Friedman came to me and said, Tom, if you guys strike me, I'm out of the business. I, I need to rebuild my place. It, you could still work in the front. I said, well, if you sign a memo that you will agree to pay the comics, once you get rebuilt, then we'll do it. So he did, and, and that's exactly what we did. You know, okay. Long story short, after eight weeks of walking a picket line, and uh, she finally agreed to pay us, and then um, one of the comedians committed suicide because she... Uh, wouldn't put him on for, you know, like four weeks went by. Steve Lebetkin. Thus, the title, by the way, I'm Dying Up Here is a oh, double entendre, as wow, you guys yeah, know. Wow, yeah, I never thought of that. You know, yeah, wow. and that was the double entendre. But it, it's a fa Jim Carrey supposedly bought the rights to that book, and he's going to try to make a movie of it. Oh, know? wow, that'd be oh, interesting. Wow. wow, that'd be great. Yeah. But here's the thing that you should know, all comedians should know, that why I have such deep respect for all those kids that walked that picket line with me, that... The day we won that strike, the day the comedy store decided to pay, comedy clubs were opening up all over America and they weren't going to pay. Well, the day we did that, the following day, the improvisation in New York, the comics assembled and they decided to pay. Not one kid carried a picket sign, not one kid walked away. In London, the, the comedy clubs started paying over there. All of a sudden, it changed the face of comedy in this way. People would lure you to Denver, Colorado and say, come to Colorado and work for 100 bucks a week. And you say, well, gee, I don't work for 100 bucks a week. They say, you work the comedy store for free. Come here and try out your new material. We'll give at least give you 100 bucks in lodging. Once the comedy store started paying, all the other clubs had to fall in line with at least a fair wage. Mm -hmm. So what was so the fair wage back then? then? What was the fair Pardon wage me? back then? What, what were you getting paid once it started for your first sets? The, the $25 a set, you know. Now, here's the irony of all that. We struck for eight weeks. All we really, all, I was really only asking Mitchie for 5 or $10 a set when we first went in to ask them. And by the way, I didn't need the money, you know, but uh, I didn't want the money. I wanted the kids to be paid. Well, $5 wasn't going to change my life for $10. But they struck and they got $25. That was what they asked for. And, and, and so what did Mitchie do? The moment they struck and won, she raised the cover charge. You know, at the door, which what I asked her to do eight weeks before. Wow. But here's the thing. We won, and they got $25 a set. Today, 34 years later, the comedy store is paying $7.50, or $12.50, and the improv is paying $7.50. Wow. That's far. <laughs> and, by the way, today, comics, as you know, some of them can get a 20-minute set if they bring in 10 people. Yeah. You know, or, or, or they can go to open mic night and pay $10 in some places, yeah. you know. So we've gone in reverse here. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, really sad. You know, I could say that we have someone in the room here, Larry G., who consistently in the Tampa Bay area has supplied free open mic nights for people for as long as possible. Larry's the first stage I ever got on, and he's given me some of my first get sets. But that's something that you've always talked about is giving, Larry, giving people the opportunity to be on stage for free. Yeah, I, I love your story, Tom. I'm, I've been doing this for about 20 years, and I'm... I'm just I'm just absolutely enthralled with every word you just said. I loved your story. 
And uh, yeah, I, I, it's not about the business for me, which is why I'm so poor. As a matter of fact, I'm thinking about turning into a gay bar after your story tonight. I think it's a <laughs> There you go. But, you know, the, uh, Jamie Masada, I, I got to love him, too. Jamie Masada pays his comic $70 uh, here in Hollywood and $100 in Long Beach if they drive to Long Beach. He has, he, he feeds the homeless four times a year. Uh, I mean, four, four settings at Thanksgiving and four settings at Christmas with the money he makes. The comics, we come in there and we feed the homeless, and then we get up and do stand-up for the homeless. I mean, I think he's tried to at least, you know, and he never charges anybody to open mic night. And he's really tried, you know, to stay but says, you know, if you own a comedy club, 50% of the comedians are going to say you're a wonderful human being. The other 50% to say you're the dumbest human being that ever stepped on the planet because you don't think they're funny, you know. Right. Uh, right. So you, you, right. you pay the price being a comedy club owner. And if you've got a big heart, you know, you're right. You, you, you get, you're, you're being, you know, barely making ends meet, you know, because you love the art form. And, and my hat stuff to you for that, you know. Well, I, I got to tell you that uh, probably uh, the biggest problem I have with some of the comics is that they'll come up to me and say to me after uh, they've done some stage time, what uh, what do I got to do to get paid, work here and get paid? And um, I'll ask them, what do you want to do? You want to wash dishes, sweep floors, clean bathrooms? <laughs> well, I, I want to I do comedy. I said, well, first I got to see some comedy. Sorry, but, you know, it's... Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, we all start it, out it, that it, way. All comedians think they're ready long before they are. Long, and I was one of them. I mean, I, I, I tell comics that all the time. You know what? This is not uh, 10K. It's a marathon. The, you know, comedy is, is a lifetime. There's no hurry. Don't get in a big hurry. Don't, you know, there's no hurry. Just keep working on your craft. But all comedians think they're ready. They come to me so many times and say, can you help me get on at the Laugh Factory? Can you help me? Can you talk to Bud Friedman for me? Or, and, and, uh, and I'll go look at them. And, 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 uh, and sometimes they are good. I think I say, well, they, you do deserve a spot. But if the owner doesn't think you deserve a spot, I tell them there's nothing I can do then. It's his club or it's her club. You know? and, uh, and if you can't take rejection now, you better get out of the business because the rest of your life, you know, when I first started out, Phil, I met Phyllis Diller. She said, oh, you want to be a comedian? I said, yeah. She said, I guess you say we can say whatever we want on the radio. So I'll tell you what she told me. She said, then take a teaspoon and dip it in, in shit every day and eat it. Eat, take a teaspoon of shit every day. I said, what are you talking? She said, because you're going to have to eat shit the rest of your comedy career. She said, they're going to reject you. They'll just reject you at a higher level. I mean, now you can't get on at the, at the comedy store, and next week you can't get on the Tonight Show, and then a week after that, you, you lose a spot for a sitcom. I mean, you're going to be rejected all your life, you know. Thick skin, uh, thick know. skin. Mm -hmm. That's why I think it, you, yeah, it's, it's good to wear makeup if you can. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was where the, the thick skin... It's the greatest profession on the planet. You guys know that. I mean, what, what the greatest profession. You know, less than 1% of the population of the world make a living at what they love to do. That's a fact. Yep. You know, the, the, you guys know they did a survey around the world of the ten fears of man. Death mm -hmm. was fourth. Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear. If you can get up in front of an audience anywhere, and, and if you're a house painter or a lawyer or a truck driver, and you can talk for one hour on stage about your profession, your truck driver or your being a lawyer or whatever, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world that can do that. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're one millionth of 1% one of, one of the population of the world. You are so special and so unique. You know, it, that's why this is such a great profession. People are healthy for having had your services. You know, laughter is healing. We all know that now. All surveys and there's all sorts of medical records on from Norman Cousins, you know, the book Laughter Math to the other book in the Anatomy of an Illness, what laughter does to the human body. What stand-up comedians are, how important, how essential they are to the, the health of our society. And, and that's why I tell them all the time, you are so special and so unique. Don't tarnish your profession. You never hear a, a doctor talk badly about another doctor. Have you ever gone to a doctor and he'd say, you'd say, well, I th I'm thinking about going to Dr. Marenthal. That butcher, I wouldn't send a, you know, they don't talk like that. And that's why you shouldn't talk badly about other comedians. You know, uh, have more respect for your profession than that. You know? that's a, I that's agree with that. Definitely that's great. Advice there. To have. That's a great one. That's a great one. You know, Tom, uh, one of the guys I loved when I was a kid growing up was, uh, and I think I told you this once long, long time ago, was Sammy Davis Jr., and you got the opportunity to be with him a lot. I just loved your Sammy Davis Jr. story in Lake Geneva at the Playboy Club. I don't know if you remember that one. I'm talking about it all offhand, but 
That was where, if you're talking about where I told you that story at the Lake Geneva yeah, Playboy Club. Well, you actually, yeah, you uh, you did, you said that Sam used to like to pull pranks, and mm-hmm. uh, and I think you told me something. I didn't know if you remember that story or not. Well, you, you can cue me, and I'll tell you. You were I, jogging. I so you were jogging. I used with to Sammy be for used years, to jog, and, used and to uh, I got a couple. What was the one that you're talking? You're talking about the one where he. Uh, he was hiding, I think, on you. Oh, you no, that, that wasn't Lake Geneva. That was in Cleveland at the Front Row Theater. Oh, I'm sorry. I was jogging, and, and it was like 95 degrees out there. And, uh, and and I was jogging around the hotel, round and round and around the hotel, and he looked out of his suite, and he saw me, and he, he went down the back, and he hid in the bushes. <laughs> and as I was, when I went around the hotel, he opened up the bushes, and he hollered out, you go and die. And, 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 and I damn near died of a heart attack right there, you know, he's... I, and then I, I always tell everybody, and then the son glanced off of his jewelry and caught the bushes on fire, you know. But. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. So he, was, he was an amazing, you know, I'm a show business student even to this day. I, I go watch young open mic kids, and then I'll go watch the greatest performers. But touring with Sammy, after every show, I'd sit in the wings and night after night watch the way he graced the stage. There was no one like him. I mean, he, I mean, I love Frank. I toured with Sinatra for years, and, and Sinatra had a command that it's even hard to describe. But Frank, Sammy could sing as good as anybody out there. He, Frank said, I never heard Sammy hit a clinker. Sammy could sing as good as anybody out there. He could dance better than anybody out there. He could do comedy as good as any comedian. He could do impressions better than any impression out there. He could play the trumpet. He could play the piano. He could play the drums. I mean, yeah. he was an amazing talent. You know? Yeah. I used to love his book, uh, Yes, I Can. I used to carry that around with me everywhere I went when I was a kid. I had that book with me all the time. I'd read it over and over and over and over and over. Just, you know, all the, all the stories in there were so great, you know? Uh, yeah. In my one-man show, I'm doing a one-man show around the country now called An Evening of Laughter and Memories of Sinatra. And, and in it, a screen comes down in the theaters, and Dennis Farina narrates a film of my life, about a four-minute film, and then he introduces me on film, and I come out and do stand-up for like 45 minutes, but I segue over to a bar, and the lights go down low, and I, and I start cleaning the bar and pouring a drink, and Frank starts singing, you know, it's quarter to three, there's no one in the place except you and me, and I, and I let that mood set in, and then I finally tell the audience, I say, first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old. I was shining shoes in a bar on the south side of Chicago. And then I take him from that little boy hearing Frank Sinatra's voice on the jukebox in Chicago to carrying his coffin out of the church in Beverly Hills. So I take him on that journey of what it was like. And in that journey is, of course, the Tim and Tom stories, the Johnny Carson, but touring with Sammy Davis. And then finally turning with Sinatra, you know, being with Dean Martin and, and Sinatra. And I, I tell stories that are, I have the audience laughing, but then I have them in tears. And for you, for, for, all, for all of you, I, I know you'll appreciate this. You know, in the end, I close with a monologue, so I make sure I leave them laughing. But I've always thought in my life that a good comedian can make you laugh for an hour and a half. But a great comedian can make you laugh and cry in that hour and a half. I've only seen two comedians do that. One was Red Scout and the other was Richard Pryor. And when I saw Pryor do it, I said, I want to do that one day. I want to, that's a risk that most comedians, I just want to try that before I die. I want to take the audience where I have them laughing and then I want to take them to tears and try to bring them back again. And, and, and I'm, I'm able to do it in this play, but, it, but there are some nights that I'm, when I'm out there, I'm going, oh shit, I hope this works, you know. Uh, Is this well, opening you get caught up in the moment, you know. Well, that's a real testament to uh, your ability as a storyteller and what we would break down to is like a salesman because that's what you are. You're selling yourself on the stage. And I know when I first started in comedy, I just got up there and I told the first five minutes of jokes I could come up with. And I'm only a year and a half into it. And I'm just starting to realize now that I have to form stories. And now when I go to the open mics and I'm back to the point where I start a new joke and I'm like, oh, wait a minute, nobody left. All right, I got to either rework it. It's it's hard to transition into becoming a storyteller, and it's almost like it's a dying art form. You don't see a lot of comedians that are out there now coming up and starting to just start to pop that really do that. It seems a little different. Well, first of all, we're a soundbite society. You know, as I told you about the Tonight Show, Shecky Green used to tell me, Tommy, I can't do what you do. I can't. It takes me six minutes to say hello when I go out in front of an audience <laughs> in Vegas or something. You know, you guys have to get hot the moment you get out there. 
And on the Tonight Show, I used to time my material. I'd, I'd, when I'd go work on my, my material, take my tape recorder, I would try to get 22 to 26 laughs in that five-minute uh, five period. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if I knew I had 22 to 26 laughs, I knew I had a tight piece. You know, 60 seconds on television without a laugh is an eternity now. The art of storytelling is gone, you know, um, in, in, from, uh, not in, in a club, but from television. You know, because they, we are, we have the attention span of a gnat, and we're a soundbite society. You know, mm-hmm. get to the joke, get to the joke, get you know quickly, get to it. For you, David, I would say anybody who's starting out, your first ten minutes, tell me about you, tell me about where you're from, tell me about your neighborhood, tell me about your mom and dad, tell me about your brothers and sisters, tell me about where you went to school, because. When you leave the stage after eight to ten minutes, we'll say, gee, wasn't he funny? And do you know he's from this? You know, let, let me give you an example of this. Jack Benny, when I first met Jack Benny many years ago, uh, Irv Cupson, a, a, a columnist in Chicago, had a talk show, and he put me on when I'd been in the business about a year. And I was a fan of Jack Benny's uh, because I thought, I think a person is an artist in any endeavor when they make their work look, one word, effortless. Mm. You know, Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music. You will be my song. You say, oh, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Mm-hmm. You know, in the same way with Jack Benny, he made comedy look easy, mm-hmm. effortless. You know, and so I, I, I would watch him. But when I first met him, I was in such awe of him, I was asking him a hundred questions. But he said to me, you know, Tommy, when you first go on that Tonight Show, your first time, now, that, the Tonight Show was the furthest thing from my mind at that time. But he said, when you walk out there, don't tell him about the government or tell him about the airlines. Tell him about you. He said, tell him about Harvey, Illinois, where you're from. He said, where am I from, Tom? I said, you're from Waukegan, Illinois, Mr. Benny. He said, how do you know that? I said, well, I've heard you say that. He said, you damn right. I said it. I'm the only comedian ever from Waukegan, Illinois. I could have said Milwaukee. I could have said Chicago or New York. He said, but I'm the only comedian ever from Waukegan, Illinois, and you're the only comedian I ever heard of from Harvey, Illinois. He said, tell him about your childhood. Tell him about your brothers and sisters. So that when you leave that stage and 15 million people are watching you on the Tonight Show, you walk up and they'll say, gosh, wasn't he funny? And do you know he's from Harvey, Illinois? That's where the accent comes from, the south side of Chicago. Do you know that he had eight brothers and sisters? And do you know that, that uh, he went to Catholic school? And do you know that he played basketball on an all-black basketball team? Or whatever it is you're leaving, you're leaving part of you out there. Now, I don't, I don't, you don't have to do that your whole career, but your first 10 minutes should be about you. Introduce yourself to the audience with humor. I love that it. is that is great advice, yeah. and great advice. that's one of the things I've actually been struggling with is creating family stories that, you know, because my my family's always telling me why don't you tell you know talk about this and talk about that, and and you take those stories and you have to try to relay them out, and that's for me now that I'm starting to do it, I have one or two that have been successful, but it's a definite process to. I wish I would have started off thinking that way, but. It's definitely the way I'm working now and a great piece of advice. Yes, it is. I tell yeah. you, after 30 years, Tom, I finally realized why I didn't make it. Thank you. <laughs> that, was my whole, that was my whole problem. As long as you have, you have that kind of sense of humor, you've made it. You know, a sense of humor is the greatest gift that God can bestow upon a human being. And a sense of humor is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings or misfortunes. It's when you have the ability to laugh at your own. You know? uh, oh, I definitely and, and, do that. And, and, <laughs> and, 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 and that's what we are. But, it, but it, 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 it just makes sense that audiences want to know. Now, let me tell you. When you got Jack Benny's stature, or even now, in my case now, I can walk out on the stage in Chicago and I can do my first joke could be about the government or the traffic or the airlines or because they know who I am. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, if, if they do, if they don't, then I reintroduce. If I'm in some little place and sometimes I go out and there's a whole young audience out there and uh, and there's a new audience every two years, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll go into delve into where I'm from and stuff like that. I'll reintroduce myself to an audience, you know. Wow. Do material like that. You know, you guys know who Jimmy Brogan is? Yes, mm-hmm. yes. Jimmy, Jimmy Brogan, as you know, booked The Tonight Show for Jay for a while. Mm-hmm. And about five years ago, he was at the Laugh Factory, and I saw him in there, and he was looking for comics. And we were talking. I was getting ready to go on. I had some material I was working on. And he was saying how difficult it is today, and you've got to be so topical in the comics of today. I said, that's not true. And I said, he said, no, no, Tom, you've got to be, you know, you've got to be more well-read and, and all that than your day. I said, Jimmy, I'll go on stage tonight. I could do the first the first Tonight Show I ever did, I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show, but I'll do the first one in this audience. I said, no, Tom, I don't think they will. These kids today, not. I said, I will go up there tonight, and you watch 
I'll do the first, my first Tonight Show. And I went up and I did the first six minutes of my act was my first appearance on the Tonight Show. And those kids roared because you know why? There's a brand new audience. They never heard that before. Right, right. They, they, you know, there's no such thing as an old joke. You know, there's, I mean, if you've never heard it, there's no such thing as an old joke if you've never heard it. You know. That's true, that's true. And there's a brand new audience every two or three years. Well, now that, that, delving into that, that explains why I get booked every two years. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. You explained it so much to me, Tom, in one night. Very this good. Awesome. So, so, Tom, we have about five minutes left in the show. So I want to I want to ask you to, about two things. One is I want to ask you a little bit about. I know you're involved. I had Paul Rodriguez on the on the show a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about uh, the Laugh Factory. You guys are going to be opening in Chicago, and I guess you're involved in that as well. Yeah, they, they, Jamie Masada asked me because it's my hometown, and mm-hmm. I know everybody in the town. I know all the people and the mayor and and all that stuff. So I introduced Jamie. I went in there, and I'm and I'm I'm a partner, but not, um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to have a lot. Of, it's Jamie's club. He knows yeah. that's his franchise. You know, I'm a name, and I'll help him, and and I'll and I'll I'll come in town and, and do some shows there every now and then. You know, um, what do you guys and, expect? And I, and, when are you guys expecting the club to open? It should be open any day now. He's, he, they had some problems with the sign. This, if you see the sign he had in, in Hollywood, on Hollywood, on Sunset Boulevard, it's a big, beautiful neon sign that mm-hmm. uh, flashes and, and, and all that. He wanted that same sign in Chicago, and there was some problems, so that may not be ready for another week or two, but he should probably open in a couple of weeks and then do a dry run and then have a grand opening maybe a month or two later, you know. Another thing I always like to ask is, um, out of the young comedians that you get to see in L.A. or anywhere through your travels, who are some of the up-and-comers that you truly like or that maybe you want to give a shout-out for or to? Oh, I I love this kid, Johnny Sanchez. You know, I I saw him um, the other day, Johnny Sanchez, and uh, he cracked me up, you know. Um, I've seen him every time I go over there. I don't know if if you've ever seen Johnny work. But there's, there's, you know, the, the, I saw a young girl, Sue Costello, I say young girl, I thought she may, she may, you know, um, uh, what's her name, um, Natasha Leggero, she cracks me up, mm. you know. Okay. Uh, have you ever seen Natasha Leggero work? Oh, yeah, she's fantastic. Oh, she cracks me up. She had one line that I just fell off the chair, she said, a guy said to her, you know, Natasha, you're too pretty to be a comedian. And she said, aren't you too ugly to be talking to me? <laughs> but, but I mean, you know, but by the way, you know, I know I sound like Will Rogers, you know, but I never met a comedian I didn't like. There's never a comedian. I've met some I didn't like off stage. Don't get me wrong. You know, but on stage, I've every, if it's an open micer or, or, or a veteran, there's always something in the rack that will knock me out. You know, I'm, I'm, I love comedians. I'm a big fan of comedians, you know. So I come there. Most comedians say, well, I don't laugh at other comedians. See, I'm studying their style, which is bullshit. You know, I mean, if they're funny, they're funny. I get caught up into what they're doing, you know. Um, but the, the, this kid, Johnny Sanchez, is really, you know, I saw this kid the other day. I'm actually, he's very popular. Is uh, Daniel Tosh. Is that it? Yeah, yes. Yeah. I saw him do a set the other day at the Laugh Factory, and he was very funny. Oh, yeah. Really clever stuff, you know. Yeah. Tom, what is your show going to be on? Like the show that you're doing that is about Frank Sinatra. When is that? Yeah, where are you going to be touring? Where are you going to be touring? Well, I'm, I'm touring all over. You can go to my website, TomDreesen.com. Okay. You know, D-R-E-E-S-E-N for those who are mm-hmm. listening. TomDreesen.com. And I've, I've been doing it in theaters, you know, around the country. But um, I'll be I'll be doing it, you know, all over wherever. You know, I I I, I get so much going on this year. I'm going to be appearing in a couple of movies I read for some parts that I'm going to do. I also, um, our own movie, Tim Reed and I, our movie is, the first draft just came in, and so we'll be consultants on that film as well. Nice. Uh, wow. Plus, I'm doing the, um, I do corporate dates all the time, AT&T, IBM, American Airlines. They'll hire me to be the master of ceremonies, which, by the way, I give this advice to all comedians. Keep reinventing yourself. You know, as well as I'm a stand-up comedian, I also MC major corporate events where I can run the evening festivities, award shows, but do a monologue within the confines of that. So it gives me another angle for, for corporate America to hire me, or they can hire me as as doing 45 minutes or an hour of stand-up. But I can also MC, and then I give motivation speeches at luncheons and sometimes for corporate America and at universities. You know, so. 
uh, and as well as acting and stuff. So just keep reinventing yourself as you go along the way. You know. It's funny how you talk about the motivational speaking because I've been in sales a very long time and on commission, and that was one of the other areas that I hope comedy was going to give me the strength and confidence to get into because moving up in just the corporate world, there's times when I have to speak in front of 50, 100 different executives. Um, so it was it was a way for me to, I joke around and say, increase my testicular fortitude. But, you know, I had to make sure that I had the gumption to get up in front of all these people and speak. And that was one of the things that I originally tried to get out of comedy. And I've gotten a lot more from it, including getting to have an interview tonight with, you know, again, another one of the celebrities and greats of comedy. And it's been lucky Wow. Lucky for me. Um, well, if you can if you can get up in front of an audience and try to make people laugh, everything in our business pales by comparison. So if you go on an audition and you're auditioning for a part of something, if you're able to go up and do stand up, you can audition for that part too. You know. Mm-hmm. The, the the best advice I tell comics is, I mean, there's there's five steps. Number one, start where you are. Number two, work as often as you can. Number three, read the book, The Magic of Believing. Number four, realize no one is ever going to help you. Number five, don't ever quit. You know, number one, start where you are. If you're in Toledo, start there. You know, two, work as often as you can. Get up, get up on stage anywhere you can, anytime you can, for any charity, anything, anytime you get in front of a microphone. I, my favorite line by a Monday nighter one night, he said, I just joined AA, and everybody applauded. He said, I don't have a drinking problem. I need the stage time. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the thing is, uh, real, uh, read the book, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol. If you don't believe in yourself, you can't expect an audience to do that. Number four, realize no one is ever going to help you. If you can't make money for them, they can't help you. You're going to have to keep doing it yourself till you make yourself marketable. Once you're marketable and they can make money from you, then they'll help you because they're going to get paid for it. So you have to you know, market yourself, you know, get, make yourself marketable. And number five, don't ever quit. Bertrand Russell once said, there are people in show business who become major stars simply because they didn't have sense enough to quit when they should have. <laughs> and that's my story, and that's everybody's story. Don't ever get If this is your dream, don't give up. All right. Well, Tom, listen, I really thank you for calling in. I always, you know, it's my show, so I get to wrap up the show with what I have coming up. Uh, <laughs> in the next two weeks, I'm actually going to do my second charity event, which is going to be for the Alzheimer's organization. Uh, it's the 13th year they're doing it, so I was really excited to be invited to be a part of that. Um, I also have a show coming up at Coconuts, I believe, on February 18th. But a one tribute thing I wanted to talk about, we're going to be doing a show here on uh, February 6th, and then at Coconuts we're going to be doing a show on February 10th, 11th, and 12th for a comedian that I never got the opportunity to meet, and a lot of people have. He was a touring headliner for years. But his name was Uncle Dow, and he very recently just passed away. And we're going to have a benefit uh, to raise money with all the proceeds from the ticket sales and parts from the food in the bar to, to the wife and family to help out. So I invite anybody that's in the Florida area or wants to get involved with donations to feel free to give an email or anything to Let's Be Frank with Dave Frank at yahoo.com. Uh, you can call Coconuts Comedy Club on Gulf to Bay, or what's the? How do you want them to go to hold the coconuts if they want to buy tickets or order tickets? Call the reservation line. Okay, and what's that reservation line? It's seven two seven seven four one eight zero one four. All right. Definitely make a reservation. Yeah. We got uh, other comedy club owners coming in. We got yeah. comics from all over the southeast. Yeah. I mean, Uncle Dow was a loved or beloved man, and we're, he's going to be sadly missed, but we're going to pay a great tribute to him. And I hope anybody that can help out or is going to be available to come and see the show will. Tom, thank you very much for spending some time with us. I really appreciate you calling in. Uh, I hope you had a good time on the show. I had a great time, and I want to, I want to do a set at Coconuts one night. What, you let oh, us know when. Oh, come by. You let us know I really when. Do. I really do. You uh, let us know it, when it, you're it, coming it, it, to Florida. We'd, we'd love to have you. I'll find a special room for you. <laughs> I'd love to have you. Do, do that. Send me a um, send me. And Davey's got my Facebook. Send me the the address and everything and the information, yeah, no. and then I will uh, I will look forward to trying to do that. Tom, I don't I don't usually count out to big celebrities. I've met Elaine Boozler and whatever, but 
if you come play my club, I can die right after that and be happy. <laughs> <laughs> you got you yeah, got to let me I, you got to let me I, do my Fat Davy song and open for him for thirty seconds. <laughs> Maybe I I'll die you, before I the show. I'll do that if I get anywhere near you. I'll stop and I promise you. Hey All man, right. the we open gotta, we'll, we'll talk. You know, the open mic's on Thursdays, so. Open mics on Thursday. Yeah. You can come and pick I'm about to do a set. <laughs> I, I, I got I to audition. I'm, I'm willing to do that. <laughs> you know what would be funny? You would come in and how many people, you would listen to the smack that comedians are talking as opposed to, as you said, the getting along and helping each other out. And then you'd get on stage and teach them all a lesson. Well, by, by the way, I, would, I do this seminar, and they'd have a lot of fun. I, I do this seminar called The Joy of Stand-Up Comedy and How to Get There. It's, it's a, a motivational speech for comedians, veterans, as well as newcomers. And, and I'd gladly do that. We'll talk about that. I'll, yeah, I'll gladly do that. All right. If I'm in the area, I'll, we'll do it on some afternoon you know, or something like that. All right. Well, thanks again for calling in to the Let's Be Frank show on Comedy Slam Radio. We're going to let you go. You have a great evening, and we'll speak to you soon. America, thanks for tuning in. And we'll be frank with you again next week. Everybody have a great night. Good night now. Take care, guys. Good night, Tom. Good night, Tom. Bye-bye, Tom. Tell me what that was. That was another fine show from ComedySlamRadio.com, where we put the dot-com. This is, this is Al Freeman from the Alzheimer's, the Alzheimer's Family, Family Organization, and I'd like to invite you to the 13th, 13th Annual Gong Show. Show. Our sponsors this year are Comedy Slam Radio, Carabas, Kia, Newport Richie, and the Tampa, Tampa Times. Times. This, this being, being the 13th, 13th Annual, which we probably present at the, the location, location in Port Richie at, at 9814 Scenic Drive. Carabas will be there to serve and cook food right on site. It's BYOB. With over, over 20, 20 acts of fun, fun. We, have we have four judges, judges just, just like, like in the real life. life. They, have they have to buy, buy their way, way into this. this. It's, it's a, a fun, fun full night, night with 50-50, raffle prizes, silent auction, auction door, door prizes, prizes, too many, too many others, others to mention, mention soda, soda and water, water provided, provided at no, no cost. cost. This, this event, event is always a sellout with over 600 in attendance. With all the proceeds going to help Alzheimer's patients in the Tri-County area and the education needed to give the support to the caregivers. The phone, the phone number, number if you're interested, interested in going, going to this, this great, great night, night of fun, fun 727-848-888-888. To preview some of the past shows over the years, years go to alzheimersfamily.org. Again, Again, go to 727-848-888-888 and give your support for Alzheimer's Family Organization. And family is their middle name.